0: Hello and welcome to episode 30 of It's Never Sunny in Seattle, a Seattle Mariners podcast. I am your host today, Evan James, joined by Michael Ahedo and Anders Jorstad. The Mariners' playoff hopes have dwindled nearly to zero over the last week or so, but there is good news to discuss. Most prominently, and perhaps most importantly for the team's future, is that latent super prospect Jared Kelnick has at long last started to mash. I'm going to throw this over to Anders first. What have you seen from Jared over the last month and some of the improvements he's made?
1: Yeah, it seems like at this point he's just having more, I would say, competitive plate appearances, uh, especially in that most recent game against Jackson Coar of the Royals, who's no slouch on his own, by the way. This is a guy who has been really kind of talked up as a top pitching prospect, not just for the Royals and already deep system, but just in general, in Major League Baseball. And Jared Kelnick had a home run and two doubles in that game, which was really awesome to see. He got on base four times. And in particular, I'm thinking about one at-bat in which he fell behind 0-2, then still managed to put a pitch in play for a double. Um, So I'm just really loving in general how he's, you know, making the adjustments inside of an at-bat, not just, you know, between at-bats. And he's really just hunting for his pitches. He's not afraid to you know, foul pitches that are tough off, and he's not really chasing things that he used to chase earlier on in in the season.
0: Mikey, same question over to you. Jared's average is up over 250. His ISO is up over 1,000. It kind of feels like, in a lot of ways, this is the prospect we always hope to see this year. What do you think from him going forward in terms of sustaining this approach?
2: Yeah, um, I feel like we've talked a lot about, you know, his... Um kind of tinkering with his mechanics, and uh I felt like i mean I think it was months ago, right after um you know in the series against the the Astros, he made that mid game adjustment where he started um kind of folding in his two thousand nineteen stance, and it paid dividends like immediately he uh hit a single of the middle and for some reason, he kept kind of just fading back into, um, you know, what he was doing before. And I think I tweeted about this like maybe five days ago, and he's been kind of going to it and going away from it. But the more that he uses, you know, a more 19 or 2019-ish stance, the better he, I think, the better swing decisions he makes and the better contact Um, he makes both and, you know, just actually making contact, but also contact quality. Uh, and what I've seen is that he's, um, really doing that same thing where he's got a lot of movement in his hands and I think his timing is better and his his swing rhythm. He, um, I mean, before it's just, it's so weird, like with the little rock he's got, he like isn't in sync. He's got a big leg kick and it's like, there's no, there's no tension that he's building up in a swing. At least it seems like to me. And I'm, you know, I'm not, I feel like Joe Doyle or John Troopin or Kate Pruser, they're all, you know, better at this than I am, but, uh, he's not creating like, you know, a lot of tension to be able to, to impact the ball. um, with his 2019 swing, I think he's be- he's better able to do that because not only is his timing better, but he's also like getting his hands down and his barrel into the zone uh, better. So I really think it's legitimate. Like I-, I think that what he's doing right now is is the uh, you know the hitter that he probably could have been all season, uh, or at least for the the majority of the season. He just hasn't been able to do it consistently. So. Um, yeah, I, I really think like, I hope he's noticing that this is working. Um, I noted that his swing looks a lot like right now, his 2019 swing, but as he gets into his load, it starts to look like what he's been doing, um, you know, coming into the season, the early season. So maybe it's kind of like meshing, you know. Both of them together, because obviously there's a reason why he's doing, um, you know, going with why he was going with the swing before. And and people have insinuated that it's kind of to get to those flat vertical approach angle fastballs at the top of the zone. And maybe that's true, but um, he's been hitting well by fusing them together. So I'm really, really encouraged not only by, you know, the outcomes, but also the process.
1: One thing I would also like to point out is that this month has been one of the toughest months schedule-wise for the Mariners. They played the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Blue Jays, the A's, um, and so this is not like he's you know doing all this against the Royals, which he did obviously. You know he's had he had a big series against Kansas City, but a lot of this has been against these really tough teams that the Mariners have had to face as the season has come to a close. So. Um, that's really encouraging to see him performing on a big stage and performing, you know, during a time when the Mariners really needed him. Um, Obviously, I think it's pretty clear, as you mentioned at the top, that they're probably not in the playoff chase anymore. And that kind of stinks for Kelnick as he tries to, you know, further his development. I think it would have been really cool for him to experience a taste of the playoffs in his first season, uh, just like it would have been for everyone to taste the playoffs. But maybe this will give him something to him and everybody else, something to kind of shoot for next year to know that they were so close and know that there's not that much more in theory they have to accomplish in order to get to that point.
0: A little follow up on that. Um, I guess I'll throw this over to Mikey first. Uh, so Jared had this quote about his career so far has basically been like him speeding up I five at 80 miles an hour, passing people, which is really used to say that he's always been the best everywhere he's played his entire career and you know he phrased this season as it's a crash in the middle of the highway and I just got to wait it out and get around it Um, but this is the first time he's really struggled in his life but what I'm hearing from both you guys is that it sounds like you believe that the issues he's had this year have been by and large mechanical instead of mental and that his approach is fine Um, would you say that in kind of a general sense when you've seen him looking better over the last couple of weeks um, that that's purely mechanical stuff more than anything. I I think that you know they're they're related. Um, I think
2: that they began be- began you know as as mechanical. Um, probably with you know th- the psychological and mental side of the game is obviously really underrated, especially as we begin to talk more about analytics. Um, but I think they just really compounded, and you know uh, like. The more I play any sport, uh, like when I go bowling or whatever, like I, I always start off doing well. And then I start thinking about, you know, my mechanics basically, and I always get worse over time. Uh, not always, but that's, you know, kind of the general thing. And I, I've never been as, as at, as good at anything as Kellinick is or has been, you know, a, a baseball player, but, um, I really think that it began it began as a mechanical thing and then it compounded into a really mental thing and and you know which affects the mechanics um and so yeah I think um maybe when we talk about it you know we're really it's really the mental side is really understated um because he's you can see even you know he went 3 for 4 with a walk yesterday uh, during I think the at-bat that he – I don't remember if he struck out, but uh, it was like 1-1 and he fouled off a fastball and you could hear him go like, ah, just like super upset with himself. So, yeah, I think it's it's been pretty difficult for him to, to adjust to not being the best player on the field. Um, and I think there's, you know, a lot to kind of that um, – that analogy that he brought up about you know being on the freeway, whatever uh but you know he's he's hitting fastballs now and he's doing it like he hasn't at all you know this year, so I don't know I don't know what he's going to look like as an off speed you know um kind of ball hitter, but you just kind of have to hit them well enough and uh be able to to take you know pitches that are out of the zone enough and crush fastballs. And that's what he's doing now. So it's really encouraging.
1: A lot of this makes me really curious as to, you know, when Julio comes up, what his transition will be like. And every player is built differently. So for all we know, he's going to hit the ground running in like a Juan Soto-esque fashion and immediately catapult himself into being the best player in the lineup. But he could have what Jared's having right now. And I wonder if he does, you know, how would his mental process compare to Jared's and how would his ability to hold up in a circumstance where he struggles mightily for three months compare to what Kelnick went through? Do you think that Julio can go through the same thing and come out as good of a player or would you be more concerned about him if he went through a similar struggle to this?
2: That's not rhetorical, right?
1: No, it's not.
2: Okay. Um... I personally think that Julio would probably have similar struggles. Um, I think he's a little more, he's not as hard on himself. Like you, you just watch him and he has, it seems like he has, you know, a lot more fun uh, just playing the game, but he, I think he does, you know, go through periods where in a different way, his, his mechanic, his mechanics get, get wonky. Um, he is more susceptible to the swing and miss that that Kelnick is. So I think Jared Kelnick is someone who y- you expect to have, you know, to kind of hit the ground running or at least, you know, jogging. Uh I think Julio is someone that you expect to, you know, kind of hit the ball really hard sometimes and and miss a lot. Um So, I don't know, I'm sure we'll get into it at some point, but I I think I I would like to see him get some run either in Tacoma or in the major leagues. And I think if you expect him up next year, you do that. You bring him up. Yeah. And I do expect him to wear a Mariners uniform at some point next year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also notable, and uh, when it comes to Jared, that they are also moving him up the lineup in these final couple of weeks. He was kind of hitting in that seven-eight spot for most of the last month or two, but he was hitting fifth against uh, Jackson Coar. Um, and you remember when he first came up, they led him off. I feel like they're preparing to put him back in the leadoff spot, maybe as soon as like opening mm-hmm. day next year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they kind of showed their hand a little bit with where they see him in a you know, championship Mariners lineup, so to speak, is they want him to be their leadoff guy. Um, And I feel like that, you know, I don't know what that does to JP or whatever, but I think that that's what they're kind of prepping him for by moving him up in the lineup a little bit more to make sure he can continue these positive results in a more, you know, I guess breaking ball or off speed friendly part of the lineup where he's not going to be seeing as many Mm -hmm. fastballs in theory.
2: And, you know, I, I've talked about, you know, essentially not having any qualms moving on from JP if, if the Mariners get a Trevor story or someone like that, but with his defense, I feel so much better about having JP Crawford on the Mariners. If he's hitting seventh, eighth, ninth, instead of leading off, yes. and he's yeah. led off a lot this year. So, um, you know, I think, I think leadoff makes sense for, for Kelnick. um, He's he's still not, you know, your your prototypical guy where he hits for a really high OBP and steals a lot of bases or, you know, has the ability to. But, um you know, I, I think that is a good idea. I will say that part of the reason why he hit fifth is because Seager was out. But, you know, he hit fifth nonetheless. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we're going to get uh, into this
0: a little bit later, but, uh, there's some discussion that the the lineup we saw last night is potentially a preview for next year with Seager out of it and with some of the roster shuffling. Um, my opinion on the, the lineup spot is that he's probably not a leadoff guy long term, but they'll run him there for a little while to continue to get in more at bats. Um, and in terms of JP being a leadoff guy, it's almost entirely because he happens to be the highest average and usually OBP guy on the team. Um which is less about JP being great or not great than the Mariners having a really terrible lineup, um, quite frankly. So, yeah, I totally agree. I think that Jared, long-term, I think makes more sense the way they use kind of like Mitch Haniger in the second or third spot in the lineup, or maybe Kyle Seager. But I agree. I think they probably run him lead off purely to get him in bats, purely to get him in there more than anybody else going forward. Uh, w- would you guys kind of agree that he may shift over time in that lineup spot?
1: Yeah, and I think when you look at next year's lineup, it's very difficult, and we're going to get to this in a little bit, I know, to project it without knowing what is going to be there. Because we know the Mariners are potentially going to be players for some big-time bats, and obviously if you get a guy like Semyon or Story, like that completely changes what you're doing with the lineup at the top. So like, I think you can confidently say Mitch Hanniger is going to be in that top third, And I'm not sure you can say that about anybody else for next season. Like even Ty France, in theory, could be pushed down to like five or six, depending on what the Mariners acquire. Um, And I think a lot of that has, to, you know, that will affect Kelnick also. If they go out and they get a bonafide on-base speedster and that's who they hit at the top then maybe Kelnick becomes the two guy or the six guy, like it's really hard to know where he's going to fit, but maybe they're going to try him out at these different spots so he can get comfortable hitting at different parts of the lineup.
0: it's all together. So we're talking about kind of where everybody might hit next year. We mentioned a little bit about the the lineup we saw yesterday. Let's dig into that. So there was no Seeger in the lineup yesterday. Obviously, like Mikey said, they moved Jared up in the lineup. Um it just it felt like in a lot of ways for those of us watching, maybe a preview for next year. Um The interesting thing is that they played Toro at second base and Dylan Moore at third. The implication there being that their their intention is to run Toro out as a second baseman, even in the absence of Kyle Seager. I'll kick this over to Mikey. What do you think of that? Is that a good idea? Should we be maybe talking about Toro more as a third baseman? Should we be rotating him more as a rotational player? Um, How do you feel about that change?
2: Yeah, part of me wonders if the reason why Toro is getting so much run at second base is more of a versatility thing. And they want him to get as many reps there as possible. Um, You know, especially just with, with, um, with Seager, you know, currently at third base. Uh, I, I I think we did talk about last week, you know, kind of the, the best spot for Toro, but uh, I think, you know, he deserves an off season, uh, to kind of, you know, get it figured out because he hasn't played very much second base. Um, but, you know, kind of what, what Anders was saying about, you know, signing a Semien or, or whoever, I think it really changes the complexion of what you do with guys like Toro, like France. Like, you know, I think right now with with France hitting so well and Evan White struggling for, you know, two partial seasons... Uh, Ty Francis, you're starting first baseman, you know, to open the 2022 season. Uh, Toro, I think you have more leeway. But like I said last week, he struggled, you know, in the field, at least by out above average, especially going to his left towards first base. Um, and again, I think that you know, shifting has really changed what it means to be a fielder nowadays. You can kind of hide guys right. especially at shortstop more than you ever could. Um but, you know, if you have a bunch of guys like Chris Flexen or Marco or guys that allow a lot of balls in play, um you you do want, you know, strong fielders and and you can't just throw JP out there and, you know, call it a day. So, um <sighs> I mean, he's not my ideal guy at second, but, you know, the, the batted ball profile is probably better at second than third. Um, it doesn't, you know, matter to me, but right now, like, he he's not, he's not hitting for a ton of power, so.
1: I am a little surprised that we haven't seen Toro taking starts at third base, especially like in that game where Seager didn't start because of what we were talking about earlier with not knowing what the Mariners are going to do this offseason, if they sign a guy like Semyon, for example, and he plays second base, then Toro has to play third. Um, you know, he can't he can't play second base. So mm-hmm. it, I'm I'm very, I guess, a little bit confused by why they haven't been working him out there at least to give him some looks. Um, at this point, though, I trust Perry Hill to do pretty much anything after he made Ty France into a seemingly Gold Glove caliber first baseman overnight. So. You know, maybe if they signed a semian, they work with Toro extensively in the offseason and in spring training at third base, and maybe they make him into, you know, a serviceable third baseman by opening day and even better as the season goes on. You know, I think that's still in the realm of possibility. And maybe that's something they're considering. Or maybe the Mariners know that they're not going to be in on like a semian and they stay they say instead we're more likely to go for a third baseman or a guy we can turn into a third baseman than a second baseman. And so we're going to make Toro our long-term second baseman and watch him get better at second now. Um, so I think that they might be showing their hand a little bit with what they're doing here.
0: Pretty interesting that they haven't given Toro a single at bat at third, or, or I should say a single inning at third, like not mm-hmm. one. Yeah. He just It hasn't been a discussion. They are going to put Luis Torrens out at third base one time, hold right. him, but didn't <laughs> consider Toro. So um, it's interesting to see where their head is at with that. But since we're talking about next year, I'm going to give Mikey the option here because there is yin and yang in this next discussion. We have two pitchers, both of which whom I assume are going to be with the team next year, in Logan Gilbert and in Yusei Kikuchi. So do you want to start with the sweet or the sour of this discussion?
2: <laughs> uh, let's let's get the sour over with. Wow, okay. big,
1: uh, big Olivia Rodrigo fan over here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, Mikey, tell us about... What on earth to make of Yusei say kaguchi,
2: yeah, um, I mean, ever since he, you know the the foreign substance ban came out, uh, he just has not been the same pitcher. He has not gotten his fastball back. um just to rattle off a couple stats he's he's had sixteen games since then um, four nine three e r a four seventy seven f i p. 411 x fip or fip whatever you want to call it, uh, 14% K minus walk percentage. Those aren't good numbers. Um, I mean the the strikeout minus walk percentage is doable if you limit hard contact, but uh, he hasn't done that at all. He actually um, like his home runs per nine is 1.57, and that's not something that's just super uh, noisy. He's legitimately like on the year um, his will bacon is uh three i think 393 um yeah so uh that's above league average um actually let me see yeah 413 that's that's well above the league average that's like 50 points above league average so um so is his barrel rate. it's almost twice league average uh so i don't know there's a there's a lot of work that needs to be done with you say um i mean again loss is fastball uh, added, he dropped his arm slot, has added a ton of arm side movement to it, which isn't good. Like if you look at guys like Dustin May, they have just these, you know, demon sinkers, demon fastballs. And you expect with such significant movement that they <clears throat> that they miss bats. But the point of a sinker is to kind of run in on the hands of guys um, and break bats to create weak contact Um, that means guys are going to make contact with with the ball a lot and and guys have you know he hasn't missed as many bats since then Um, he also just throws in the zone way too much uses a cutter that just in my opinion isn't a good pitch Um, and you know since move or since you know the sticky stuff ban uh, all four of his pitches have a, a sub 30% CSW, uh, which is bad. You want, I would say you want at least two pitches that are, you know, above uh, 30% CSW. Um, and that hasn't been true. His his cutter gets put into play 22% of the time, which is, is really high. And he throws that pitch, um, you know, more than anything else aside from his fastball. So there's just so much so many tweaks that need to be made. He needs to raise his arm slot. He needs to get his fastball back. Um he needs to throw his slider beneath the zone. Uh, he's just he's just kind of broken right now and I I you know, I really adore Kakuchi. He's he's been you know, ever since he started throwing gas, he's been one of my favorites and he's he's struggled a lot. So he's
1: always been a pitcher who had shaky command i remember early on in the season i think this was actually preseason mikey you and i were talking about how when Eno you know had his list of the top whatever 128 pitchers for the year or something and you could sort by command plus and yusei kikuchi was at the very bottom in mm-hmm. command plus and you know that lack of command really puts pressure on his stuff And when the sticky, the sticky substance ban came down and his stuff has been worse since then, that's a big red flag because if you already have poor command and now your stuff is getting worse, then the whole package just completely falls apart. Um, I couldn't help but laugh at the laundry list of things that you said he needs to improve upon because it reminds me of the justice Sheffield laundry list that you have uh, or the, the uh, Justin Dunn laundry list that you have. That's
2: that's what I was going to say. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Those three guys, I mean, It's really unfortunate. It really sucks because, like, all three of those guys have looked like potential mid-rotation guys at times. You know, Sheffield last year was looking really good. I mean, he was getting buzzed for Rookie of the Year, even with Kyle Lewis doing as well as he does. Justin Dunn at the beginning of this year looked really good. And now, you you know, Kikuchi was the all-star for this team. So it sucks that none of those three have are currently looking like potential future rotation pieces for this team, but with how good this pitching development system has been, I would like to feel confident that at least one of those three guys will be a rotation piece for this team long term. I just don't know who it's going to be, and I don't know with the Kikuchi having the by far most bloated contract of the three, how long they're going to give him to get to be that guy? I, I mean, I
2: think just as Sheffield has done uh, in terms of... I know he's young. Like, he's younger than I am. Uh, but he doesn't have the command and his stuff. Like, just is not... It's just not going to work in my he's opinion. He's like Discount Marco. Basically, uh, like, he doesn't have as many... He, he doesn't have as many offerings. His, none of his pitches are as good as Marco's. Um, the command is obviously... Nothing, you know, like not close. So it's basically, yeah, he 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 throws a lot of pitches that are contacted by hitters. But uh, I just and I don't think his stuff is going to tick up in the bullpen. And I think I think we can say after, you know, this you know, run of of appearances he's had that that's true. like his his velo isn't ticking up. And that's something hmm. that I said to john and and john Troopin and the the slack is like, I actually don't think. He's going to get any more velo, and it was more of kind of just a hunch. But if he's not getting an uptick in velo, uh, oh, I don't know. Um, I do think he needs to move back to the four seam fastball, uh, and he needs to get a slider back. Something needs to be done. But I, I think his his days of being um, a starter are, are probably over. And I, you know, I don't mean to, I guess, be mean about it. It's just, I think the, the reality of, you know, his future.
1: It's, it's either an indictment on the Mariners pitching development that they couldn't turn him into something or an indictment on James Paxson's value when they traded him, that that's all they got for him. Like, I can't really tell which it is because there were, there were mixed reports when he was dealt that like the Yankees weren't super high on him anyway. Um, and obviously they were willing to trade him for an injury riddled starter, so it, it yeah. sucks, man. But Eric Swanson at least has looked like a decent bullpen piece from that deal. Yeah, I'm and I'm <laughs> ready to
2: move on from Swanson, too. So,
1: <laughs> Man, that's just a tough I mean, trade because DTW is like been the biggest disappointment two years in a row for this farm <laughs> system, too. Yeah. Also injured, right?
0: He hasn't played that much. He didn't play last year. Yeah. He has played but been bad this year. Um, The only other note I want to do real quick on you say is that sometimes I wonder when guys have really disparate halves of baseball, how we would perceive those if they were in reverse, like in particular Mm -hmm. last year, we had Kyle Lewis, who came out the gate, hit 360 for the first 30 games, and then basically didn't hit the rest of the way one rookie of the year, Um, you know, but that fall off really influenced how we felt about it moving forward. And Kikuchi is basically the same. And I wonder my impression is is if he had been this bad to begin the year and the team had been winning like they were, he wouldn't have gotten the run. You know what I mean? Like they would have mm-hmm. yanked him from the rotation. They would, have, they would have done something. So I don't think he would have pitched all year if he was that bad out the gate. But I do wonder if he had been having a pretty spectacular August and September, how we would feel about the contract situation going forward. And that's the last thing I want to talk about in regards to you say with you guys is... He has a weird contract situation, relative not just to the rest of the league, but to like to his relationship with the team. Because in a nutshell, I, I think they do like him. Like the team, the front office, the staff, the management. I think they do like him. They get along with him. They think that he's a good fit for the club. But they're a little mystified as to the performance, like we all are. So, in the, in the interest of not butchering this, the ex, or the contract that he's currently on is that. It's a team option for four years at what 60 million dollars. Is that correct?: uh, Yeah, I think 60. So four years at 60 million, or if that is declined, there is a player option for one year at 13 million. Again, am I getting that right? Uh, yeah. Okay.: 14? Yeah. Something. And then if he declines that, the team can then offer him a qualifying offer, which we looked up prior to the podcast, is about 20 million. So there are a couple of different scenarios in which he's still on the team next year. It seems likely he's still here next year. The odds that everyone declines all of those things and he really goes and tries to market seems, I don't know if unlikely is the way I would put it, but again, we're talking about just the way the season went. He was good and then bad later and people teams tend to remember the more recent stuff. And so I would think he's going into the offseason with a pretty diminished value, and 20 million a year sounds like a high ask. I could, you know, we looked it up a little bit beforehand. I could see him getting 13, 15 million on like a shorter deal. Four years, 60 million seems like a lot. Um, let me ask you this. I'll, I'll kick this over to Anders first. What would you do with Kikuchi? Would you, would you want him to pick up that 1 million or the, the one year, 13 million option? Would you, you know, have any interest in re signing him for longer than that if they could renegotiate it? How would you play this?
1: Yeah, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, I did not know that this was even a thing until we talked about this before the show. I had been under the impression this whole time that it was a one-year, $13 million team option. And that if they declined it, he was just going to be a free agent, and it was that. Um, so I thought it was really just as simple as, like, if they don't want him for $13 million, that's it. And that was the whole conundrum, is, like, does this team want him for $13 million? But it's not as simple as that. It's basically... a a mutual option which mutual options are almost always guaranteed years because if the team doesn't want the player then the player will want to stay with the team for that money and vice versa you know if the team thinks it's a good deal for them they're just going to keep the contract whether the player wants it or not um another thing i'll say is that it's kind of impossible to separate that first half second half thing from the context of the crackdown on foreign substances versus his performance true um It's a pretty clear timeline in that sense that makes it kind of hard to just think, oh, maybe this is just like a case of a guy having a bad couple months, which does happen. Like we have a reason to think that this is why and obviously correlation is not equal causation. So perhaps it is just like a coincidence that this is when he started to pitch poorly and he turns it back around next year. That's entirely possible. Or the team figures something out with him in the off season. But I think regardless, the Mariners are going to have him on on board next season i mentioned to you guys pre-show also that ever since ichiro came over from japan the mariners have had at least one japanese player on the team um so that's what 21 years running and i think that's partially you know wanting to wanting the mariners to keep their relationship up with the japanese media market Mm -hmm. um and so you know kikuchi if if he's not here they would likely seek out someone else but i think that he's going to stay and i think they are going to do as best as they can to figure out a way for him to be productive in some form even if that's as a 13 million dollar reliever because they just can't afford to have that contract be an albatross when they're already trying to save money supposedly
2: yeah i mean it's another offseason to you know he's had different mechanics every year i feel like he could settle on something next year uh, I'm kind of getting to the same point with him where, like, if his command is that subpar, uh, where you know you're you're more than twenty percent below league average, you can't. huge <laughs> it doesn't really matter how good your stuff is. Like, I, I think in terms of like command plus, the guys that can kind of make it work are like low nineties. That's like, um, Darvish, Denelson, Lamet. Uh, Kikuchi's at like 78 and it, you know, he throws a, he throws a cutter 40% of the time that isn't good. Like it, I don't know what the purpose is for him. I kind of think it's just a, 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 a pitch he can throw in the zone. Um, but it gets hit really hard. It doesn't miss any bats really. Um, so I almost just kind of think the same thing where, uh, I don't know what he can do really to, to be a really effective starter because everything else hasn't worked. Um, You know, obviously I've gone through phases of being really optimistic about him, uh, but there is a chance that they decline the team option, uh, which they are going to do. Um, He declines the player option and then they don't extend that $20 million uh, year mm-hmm. um, because you know, if if they don't think that anyone's going to sign him um, maybe they don't want to risk him coming back on a 20, mi- 20 million dollar contract because they can, that money can go a long way uh, even though it's just for a year. So I mean, especially because if they don't extend that, and he doesn't sign elsewhere, they can bring him back. And I, I kind of wonder if he's could be a potent reliever.
0: Yeah. Actually going to pose that question to you. What do you just, his repertoire is kind of weird anyway. And the command seems like a problem no matter where he is, but does any of this play up in the pen at all for any price?
2: Um, I mean, we can look at, you know, what his whiff percentages look like uh, by inning and, you know, I'm pulling that up right now. Uh, it's kind of weird. It seems like all of his stuff is like he is at his best in the fourth and fifth innings.
1: But is that is that the best By way to percentage. look at that when you consider the fact that like he knows he has to pitch multiple innings when he's starting? And if he's a reliever, he knows that he's only out there for a short stint. So the mentality is kind of different.
2: I just yeah, I mean, I think it's one way to look at it. But um, I mean like his slugging percentage is is better on his fastball in the 4th and 5th innings than any other. I mean I, and I'm only looking at 2021. I should be looking at, at probably 2022. But yeah, I mean it looks like he's had his best overall on the 4th and 5th innings. I'm I'm sure, you know, a, a change in mentality would be better, but I mean just in general that I think that's something to 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 think about, you know, in terms of uh, for the team, like it's, it's like the Felix thing. He would really struggle in the first inning and then kind of coast. Um, I wonder if there's something there in terms of Kikuchi too.
1: Well, the the way I'm thinking about that is like, maybe he's best in the fourth and fifth inning because that's when he is letting out the last of his effort because he knows that that's probably going to be his last couple innings as opposed to if he was a reliever, he could just channel all that into one inning of effort.
2: Um in terms of VLO, he really is steady at 95. Uh, for the duration of the game really. He actually ticks up a little bit in the 6th and 7th. I don't I don't know what to make of that because it's a small sample but um yeah, I mean correlation isn't causation. But, right. Uh, uh, just looking at this there's nothing to suggest that he would be better in a more limited role, but I, I you know, I I think he would be. I think he would sit at a higher velo, um, But if he's throwing this fastball that he is now, it doesn't matter. Um, he just becomes, you know, pre-2021 Dustin May, which is a good contact limiter. But is <laughs> that what you want out of your, you know, your expensive bullpen guy? I don't know.
1: I, it's also worth noting how messy the bullpen picture looks for next season in a good way. The Mariners have a lot of really good options for next year. And I don't know if they make room for Kikuchi in the pen or not, given what they already have to work with. And like with Dunn potentially being a reliever long-term and with the guys they have coming up through the minor league system, you know, there's a lot of guys jockeying for those spots. I think they would probably make a priority for Kikuchi in the bullpen with his contract, but I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And you'd have to think they're only going to put him in the bullpen if he is catastrophic frankly, right? Because we're at the point where just based on his his value, his previous success as a starter, the amount of money he's paid, it makes sense to give him run in the rotation, and you're only bumping him to the bullpen if you have better options in the rotation, which we don't, or if you you know he just isn't good enough to stick there. So it's an interesting thought, certainly, but the reality of him getting there would probably mean he has to be quite bad. Um, for an extended period of time in the rotation. So that's not a future I'm all that excited for. Um, Mm -hmm. It doesn't pretend good things. So why don't we pivot that? Because the other Mariners pitcher who I think is really critical to the team's performance next year is Logan Gilbert, who has had ups, has had downs, and has really come into his own the last couple of starts in particular. And he's gone from a guy who was throwing and getting through lineups but you know being a little wonky about it too much more of the guy that i kind of expected to see coming up from the minors and particularly this last start um and his start against houston a couple weeks ago uh he just looks like he's sequencing his pitches better he's locating a little bit better his his feel for individual hitters has improved um i guess i'll go to you firsters what have you seen from logan um over the past couple of weeks it gives you some optimism moving forward
1: Yeah, I'm trying to pull up his game log because, quite frankly, I didn't see his most recent start against Kansas City. But I know that the results, there were really good. And overall, he's just his strikeout numbers are going up, which is really encouraging. And he's keeping the walk rates down. That's really good also. But in general, it's just really good to see him getting deeper into games also. Because, you know, especially as a rookie and you want to, you know, they're probably managing his innings to some extent, although they haven't hit that cap yet. And There's only two weeks left in the season. But the fact that they're just letting him run out there is really, really encouraging. If they're just letting him ride and kind of ride that success and also portends well for next year, when you think about innings caps are often informed by the previous year's innings. And so if they're every inning that they let him throw now just increases what will likely be his cap for next year, which is really good if they want to contend next season. But I think if you're looking for like more scouting stuff, I, I'm curious what Mikey has to say.
2: Um, I mean, one thing that I've noticed, hes he's got some really interesting things going on with um, kind of his, his release point. Um, we know that he's, you know, really been tinkering with his um, slider, which has kind of, I, I don't want to say it's been turning into more of a cutter because I think he's throwing two separate pitches um I think he's throwing kind of a a slider cutter hybrid and and you know kind of his his slider from before. Um but yeah in terms of his release point his his slider it used to be a really low release slot and it's kind of turned into the higher one that he throws, you know, his um his curveball and his his fastball out of. So um I mean it's I would have to look at uh, you know data from well. I'm sure I could I could pull data from uh, kind of when he throws from certain release points, what his kind of pitch properties look like. Um, but I'm kind of wondering if that's a grip thing or more of a release thing. Um, you know, kind of like a, a grip manipulation. Like if he's just holding the ball a little tighter, a little looser sometimes, or if it's you know a, di- a whole different grip um but i i think it's something to watch i think the you know the slider cutter is something that i kind of pointed to really early on is that you know he's got the big loopy um curveball he's got the changeup which i really like he's got the slider um i w- was thinking you know he needs to fold in something a, a little harder to to go with this fastball and that's a cutter uh And he's done that, but I, I, you know, I think it's helpful to mix in, but I I don't think that, you know, right now, like he doesn't look like the guy that was really sold to us. Um, I think his fastball has been much more hittable than we've talked about. And I think that's going to continue to be a thing uh, because the shape of his fastball is, is pretty generic, you know, despite the, Extension that he gets despite the ride that he gets, like, uh, I think it's a pretty standard look. Um, he just can't really command anything all that well. Um, like, he misses a lot up in arm side with all of his pitches, and even just like if you look at his changeup location, the most common location is like kind of elevated to his arm side, um, which isn't where you want to throw a changeup. So, he's been making it work. Uh, and I'm still, you know, somewhat optimistic about him. But, like, he can't land the curveball at all. He doesn't throw the changeup all that much. Like, there are games where he throws, um, you know, the uh, the fastball 70% of the time. So um, I'm optimistic, but I, I think he needs to make some tweaks, you know, over the offseason.
1: I also think we should remember that this is his rookie season and I know Mm -hmm. that people get very impatient when it comes to prospects performing right away, especially in the wake of Juan Soto, Fernando Tatis, you know, Ronald Acuna, you see those guys take off and immediately you want all of your prospects to do the same, but Mm -hmm. specifically with pitchers, you know, a lot of the best pitchers in the game were not starling right away. You know, you look at like Carlos Rodon was like legitimately bad, pretty recently Mm -hmm. um, and is now an ace, you know, even I was just looking at Felix Hernandez's early seasons. And I I think it's not a perfect comparison because he was much younger than Gilbert is now, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. Felix in his first full season was like an average starter. Um, And it wasn't until his fifth season that he posted a sub three ERA, the one we all remember in 2009, which was kind of like his breakout campaign, so to speak. So, you know, to see Gilbert even be in the consideration for like, is this the Mariners best pitcher in his first season, not even first full season, because he didn't come up until June, like is really impressive. And I think he can build upon that going forward. And we shouldn't, you know, immediately think he's going to be bad because he wasn't, you know, an ace right away. Mm, That's super fair. Yeah.
0: And with the Felix comparison too, it's important to remember that Young pitchers change pretty rapidly, and you know we saw this really last year with Justice Sheffield being a diff, you know an entirely different pitcher one year to the next. Um, but Felix came in as a guy who was throwing ninety seven, ninety eight gas, and the rest of his pitches were good, but not necessarily overwhelming. But you know he just had such an incredible repertoire that he made it work. But he really didn't turn into Felix Hernandez, the king. Until he had five plus pitches. And obviously, you don't expect anyone to have five plus pitches. That's insanity. And that's why he was a generational talent in every respect. Um, but I think with Logan, you could see some refinement of that repertoire and of the way he goes about it. I think a major thing in his favor is that he seems to just be good at pitching, like as a mental thing. Like he, he's a good cerebral pitching athlete, um, kind of in the reverse way of Yusei Kakuchi in some ways. What I'm wondering is twofold. One is, how does everybody feel about the Mariner season? But I want to put that in some context. Jerry was on 710 last week and pretty much explicitly said, hey, the team is like, you know, in the bottom 510 spending. But historically, we've been in the top 10 as far as spending teams. We intend to get back there. That's a pretty tacit admission that the team intends to invest more payroll onto the on field product. Katie Griggs was then doing, I believe, and please don't crucify me if I'm wrong about this. I believe she was doing a pregame interview with Shannon earlier this week. And they were talking about the All Star game in particular. And she was referencing some of Rob Manfred's comments that the All Star game in 2023 is a celebration of the whole region of the Pacific Northwest and of baseball and all the fans here who have been a little underserved in some ways. And I think it was really important to hear that interview for me because. The Mariners have talked about spending and, and and it's really just lip service in a lot of cases over the last couple of years. And I, I think that maybe that's a little aggressive in terms of language, but they haven't spent. You know what I mean? So when we talk about, oh, you know, we're going to make a splash or we're going to really go for it or we're waiting for the development to hit X, Y, Z, you know, benchmarks so we can really get in there. <laughs> they haven't done any of those things. But when I hear Katie Greggs talk, and she is new to this organization, she is not of the ilk of the previous people who refuse to spend money on anything. I hear a woman who wants to make a splash and is invested in making a splash and also knows that this is the time to make a splash, that the team has rebuilt for four years now, that Jerry DePoto is on board and re-signed and Scott Service is on board and re-signed and that they have basically no money on the books they're not paying anyone anything next year they're paying bitch hanniger and you say and pennies and arbitration to anybody else they could basically sign an entire team of seven players and not break a sweat um i think that's all pretty significant and Mm -hmm. i don't want to be the guy who's like the mariners are going to spend and then go into the offseason and have them not spend and have everyone come back next year and be like (laughs) what you're an idiot dude like you got hoodwinked again you know fool me once kind of a deal um But I think the way that they have been talking about this has been much more forward, has been much Mm -hmm. more just straight up. This is what we want to do. And we're done BSing around about it. Um, So in that context, how do you feel this season went? Because I'll be honest, speaking for myself, and part of it is that I've been included in this wonderful Lookout Landing community and just a lot more baseball stuff this year than general for me. So I've had a great time. But I think this has been such a fun year and particularly given that I'm not all that fond of the early Jerry DePoto years, the 2016 to 2018 era just kind of doesn't, I'm not very fond of it at all. I'm, I'm not as nostalgic about it as I can tell a lot of other people are. Um, Cause I didn't believe in those teams. I really didn't. I liked them and I love the Mariners and I've always been a Mariners fan, but I really was side-eyed about some of those, the day holy Ryan Healy and fields being good. Like I, don't, I just, I, I couldn't bring myself to invest all the way. So I'm asking you guys, One, how do you feel about this season? Two, are you all in? Because I am. Because I believe in the direction this team is going and their their intentions. So let me go. Let's hear what Mikey has to say first. I don't know. Essentially,
2: I think that, you know, if you told me preseason that we would have, you know, a a team over 500, I would have been overjoyed and I would have have believed you. Uh, I won't, you know, lie and say that I'm not disappointed by how. We did that, um, you know, but I think in general, you have to be pretty more optimistic uh, than you were. Um, it It's a little interesting. Like, I think if you look ahead and you think about what what those pieces are moving forward that. You know, you're you're really optimistic about it's like, I don't know, Toro and Frank, like there's no stars yet. Um, right. Gilbert no, doesn't. Maybe. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Gilbert, I think. I think most people are probably disappointed. And there's parts about, you know, the picture that he is where uh, I kind of am, too. But um, in general, I, I think I'm I'm pretty optimistic. And the big thing for me is spending, which we know nothing about now, although it sounds an awful lot like from what Evan has heard in those interviews, that we are going to get some pretty big splashes. And if that's the case, then I'm really optimistic.
1: I'm going to start off by telling a story, if I may. Um,
0: <laughs> story time. There's
1: a, a, yes. Um, we're bringing story, story time back from Clubhouse and uh, <laughs> there's There's uh, time. There's a buddy of mine who I lived with in Winston-Salem north carolina for those of you that don't know um and he is a diehard jets fan new york jets the football team um and for the longest time he had in his twitter bio the jets will win a super bowl during my lifetime um and for this has been for as long as i've known him and yesterday when for those of you that aren't football fans don't know the jets had like a really embarrassing loss their quarterback through four interceptions and no touchdowns he only had like four mm-hmm. completed passes it was really bad he made a point of telling everyone that he removed that from his twitter bio <laughs> to me i i say it is to say i think that is an overreaction and i say that from coming from a fan base, as we know, that has not had success for 21 years. Like, we, we understand the feeling of, like, one day the Mariners will win a World Series during my lifetime. I feel like it has to happen, hopefully, right? Um, and I say this to say that going into a season, I feel like you have to set expectations for what you think is attainable slash, you know, what is a good case scenario for this season? What am I hoping, what benchmark am I hoping for them to get to and then you have to kind of remind yourself as the season goes on, have they hit that or not? And I say that to to this Jets fan who, like, I don't think that the Jets were going to win the Super Bowl this year. And them winning or them losing terribly the first two games, you know, doesn't change their path. And I don't think this season did anything to change the Mariners' path. And if anything, I think it helped them because coming into this season, my goal for them was play 500-ish ball and be interesting enough in the second half that I can see the pieces of a winning team for me. And they obviously did better than that. So for them to not make the playoffs, I think it's hard for me to justify being super disappointed because they've already exceeded what my my hopes were for the season. Um, So obviously I'm disappointed they didn't make the playoffs this year. But at the same time, they're already like a step or two ahead of where I thought they would be at the end of this year. And they have identified pieces that I think could be at least complementary pieces to a club that wins and makes the playoffs, you know, like a Mitch Haniger, like Kelnick, Gilbert, like even if these guys don't emerge as pillars, I think that they will be integral parts of a winning team potentially next season or in 2023. And I think that the Mariners may have to buy their core again, or at least part of their core, which is totally fine. Like the Dodgers have done this. The Yankees are famous for doing this. Like, I don't think there's any, anything wrong with buying your core, or at least mm-hmm. buying, you know, significant parts of your core. And the Mariners may have to do that this offseason. And it's really encouraging that it sounds like they're prepared to and they don't feel bad about that. Um, I have not heard the Mariners talk this way, this kind of big talk before. And because of that, I don't feel like they would talk this big talk and then they would do nothing, you know, like Jerry DePoto. I think this trade deadline gave us an example of, you know, he told us, you know, there's a couple of moves coming, but he didn't say there were going to be like big seismic moves. And he also, you know, after the Diego Castillo trade said, like, we might be done, you know, he, he kind of led us to what the expectations were. And at this point, they are setting the expectations pretty high, that I think they know they cannot fall short of them. Even if it means spending much more money on a player than they were hoping to spend, I think that they will spend money to get significant impact players. And they're willing to go to bidding wars with the Yankees, the Mets, you know, whoever is out there trying to get those players too.
2: Well, now you have to convince the guys to come, which, right, you know,
1: I think it's, and I've said this before. I think to you guys privately, it's a lot easier to convince. I, we keep going to Marcus Semyon as an example, but I just know that he's like a favorite target. So I'm going to go back to him. I think it's easy to convince a Marcus Semyon, like, hey, look, we already made a push for the playoffs last year, and everybody that was on that team is coming back. Then it would have been had they gone like 72 and 90 this year, and then all of a sudden you're convincing a guy that he has to come be the player to make them decent in the first place. Like it's easier to tell this and Hey, like if you come here, we're pretty much there already. We don't need to do much more. Um, And I think that that helped them tremendously to have this kind of season in that vein.
0: Yeah. So before this season, um, I should say earlier this year, but before the season started, I had another podcast that is now defunct because I've been working on these other ones. But my friend and I that were on the podcast, we had preseason predictions. And my prediction for this season was that the Mariners would never be above seven games over 500 and not fall below five games under. So it was, you know, about a 10, 12 game range there. Uh, I was wrong. The Mariners (laughs) it at 13 games above 500 and spent have spent months at this point, 10 games up and. I can be negative for so many reasons, and disappointed in the playoffs not being here. But they outperformed whatever I thought. And if you look at the underlying stats, you might say they're basically a five hundred team. Yeah, but like a season and every game is just a roll of the dice, and you're gonna get whatever those dice roll. And you like the the statistics only matter to an individual situation is sort of the you know the phrasing that goes around that. And you are ultimately how you play. And, you know, I'm a Seahawks fan, a Seattle fan. Do the Seahawks ever win pretty? No, the Seahawks are a train wreck of victories. And if the Mariners want to be a train wreck of victories, I am here for it. I am down for that experience. I will take wins, whatever form they come in. Um, and the team has been good this year. And so whatever negativity I have, and I again, I, I do have some. I have some real reservations about the players that are going to be sticking around. Um, I, I feel good. And also if you were to ask me what the difference is, I think a lot of Mariners fans or you know more casual fans than necessarily somebody who might listen to this podcast would ask, what's different now? So they're going to spend they've spent before, they got Robinson Cano, they got Nelson Cruz. What's what's the difference between this stage and where we're at now and 5 years ago, 10 years ago, whatever other era you want to pick. And my answer is I believe in Jerry DePoto and Scott Service and the general Mariner's developmental philosophy more than I ever believed in anything that was going on with just Justin Smoke and Dustin Ackley and that cadre of woefully underserved prospects. Um, mm. Would you guys agree with that? That the, this, the team, the organization is healthier top to bottom in ways that are not obvious if you aren't paying attention to the team? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it's ever been this strong. Um, not only in
2: in terms of the the farm system, but the the player development. Like I, I honestly, I don't know that we've ever had a strong player development system, and I think we have a top five to seven one now. Um, and this is kind of as an aside. You know, the reason why I do think it is kind of fair to come away from the season and not feel that great. Uh, Just in terms of like the current season, is that our Pythagorean win loss record is 68
0: and 81. So, oh my gosh, it's basically (laughs) flipped. Um, We've gained 12 games. Mm -hmm. Uh, And all of those fall within the range of one run games or games that the Mariners won in the last at bat because they went like 31 and 18, something like that, in one run games. That's the 12 wins right there. Mm -hmm. And You know, in
2: fairness, I think that uh, Rob Arthur touched on this in an article at Baseball Prospectus. I think more and more Pythagorean win-loss record isn't isn't really representative of actual win-loss record because, uh, you know, when teams are getting blown out, you can kind of just throw position players out. And uh, if you have an elite bullpen like the Mariners have – you can kind of beat your Pythagorean win-loss records because the games that you get beat, you get beat bad. The games that you win are going to be kind of nail-biters because you have Paul Seawalds and Kendall Gravemans and Diego Castillo's. Um, so I think you kind of split the difference. You kind of say, okay, 80 wins, 68 wins, maybe 74 wins right now is a little more fair. But uh, it's not It's not super encouraging.
1: Just just depressed to hear you say that you... you, you uh you don't believe in the, I guess, I guess what, what I, what I'm thinking here is we have been basically calling for the Mariners falling back down to earth the whole season. And it hasn't. happened. Mm-hmm. So at some point you have to believe that there's some sort of sustainability in this, that, you know, Pythagorean win loss record isn't getting, you know? Um, and I don't mean to be all fun differential and everyone, because <laughs> that's what the Mariners would say, you know, it's all about the culture, baby. um but i think there is something to the notion that like there there is some sustainability to this team being as good as it is and i don't think this is like a 75 win team over the over a full season talent wise i think that this is probably an above 500 team and maybe maybe they're not supposed to be as good as they are to to this extent but you know Ever since the second half started, they've they, they have been losing more close games um, than they were before. They were losing more extra inning games, um, sometimes in embarrassing fashion, like to the Red Sox this last week. But they still mm-hmm. have been winning a lot, too. You know, they've still been staying in the hunt. And maybe they didn't ever make a push to the playoffs or into the playoff picture itself to a point where they were holding a wild card spot in any day during the second half of the season. But they've been in it. And they've fallen down, you know, to four or five games out of it before multiple times and then climb back up to two games out, you know, they've had a a big, like up and down stretch. And every time they've crested downward, everybody has predicted, oh, well, this is where regression is setting in. And then they, you know, they say screw regression and they come back. Mm. Um, So I, I think that, you know, and with how good we think the bullpen will be next year, I think that there is an expectation to some extent that they can repeat some of this um you know run differential defying win wins uh next season
2: yeah um i think that's true it's just uh the bullpen being your best you know position group isn't very encouraging and also right. it's the noisiest you know group in in, in mm. baseball so uh huh Uh, I definitely think there's something to it and the bullpen should only get better next year, but also they're betting on a lot of, a lot of guys coming back from injury. They're betting on Paul Seawald being the same player next year. They're betting on, you know, Diego Castillo, uh, you know, kind of returning back to 2019, 2020 form. But yeah, I I think, I think in general, I would call this a legitimate 500 or better team. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: I think the last point I would make on that subject is that I've mentioned this multiple times. It goes way under the radar just because the team wins in sloppy and strange fashion anyway. Uh, our defense sucks so bad, like our, <laughs> it, it, like it doesn't get talked about. But the Mariners' defense is JP Crawford and like wings of a prayer Ty because Ty France. Die France being legitimately Uh. one of the more valuable defenders at first base (laughs) is both a staggering, like wonderful development and also just horrifyingly bad news for the rest of the infield. Um, but mostly the
1: outfield that's been bad, right?
0: That's where I'm going with this is that a major thing that will that could assist this team in being kind of like a team that wins close games and relies on that bullpen is having an outfield that makes plays because good lord, the. The Jake, Jake and Jared outfield is <laughs> something, man. And like, I like Jared and I'm very excited to see him find a permanent home in left field after all this center field time is how I would say that. Um, I'm excited to see Kyle Lewis back. We've talked about them needing to get a real center mm-hmm. fielder, but like that outfield defense is not cutting it. <laughs> it's just not. It
1: sucks that I forget Kyle Lewis exists most of the time. Mm. This is like how I felt about Mitch Hanager last year. Like I was like, oh yeah, we have him next year. <laughs> and Machaniker is like arguably the best hitter on the team. I I didn't feel this way before. Uh, famously, I, I've been kind of like anti bringing someone in. I'm more convinced now than ever that there is going to be a 550 plate appearance or more outfielder for the Mariners next year that is not currently in the organization.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's, that's wise, that right? right?
0: Yeah, that's a good I don't thing. That's that be means Jake Fraley and... doesn't need to play as much,
1: right? I don't know if that's going to be a player acquired by trade or free agency. I just feel like something has to, has to come to this team.
0: They need someone they can count on. And it's not that there haven't been flashes from Kyle and from Jake and from Jake, (laughs) but, um, flashes are great, but they've each had like 300 plate appearances and have only looked good for a half or a third of that time and have been largely injured. Otherwise, They need somebody who can just be out there every day and stabilize it because throwing a different configuration out a hundred games a year is just, it's just, this is not the way that winning teams, win baseball, winning teams, win baseball by having good players playing their optimal positions, not throwing seven guys out there who could interchangeably play anywhere and not really have defensive differences. Um, and that's an exaggeration, but it's not as much of an exaggeration as it should be. So Um, anything else today? I feel like that's, we've done a pretty comprehensive job where the team is at and the season is still not over. There is baseball yet to be played.
1: No, I think that, you know, I'm curious to see how they spend these last few games, especially if they fall out of contention. I'm looking for what they do with the lineups, you know, maybe the day the Mariners are mathematically eliminated because that's going to be, you know, there's going to be a couple of games at least. And do we see Toro at third base? Do we see Torrens at third base? Finally, do we see, you know players mitch hanniger in center field or something you know i'm curious uh, to well, see how they change <laughs> change uh, the alignment in some way um yeah as a test for next year
2: my eyes are mostly going to be on jared i think that's really i mean because it's one of the most make or break things i think it's jared julio a couple of i think really the the starting pitchers coming up so uh continuing to track the minor leagues, uh watching Jared. Um I don't know. I think that's
1: mostly it. We we didn't actually get to mention this, but I did want a quick prediction. When do you guys think we see Julio in the big leagues at this point? And obviously this is a big shifting thing, and I'm sure we'll talk about it during the off season. My guess is like May twenty twenty two.
2: I would guess a little after I would say June or July. I'll be conservative and say July.
0: I'm going to say how about I'll switch it up. I'm going to say next week. I think uh, Arkansas Arkansas is out of the playoff race. They could call him up to Tacoma. They could also just give him a little run when they're eliminated. Um, But if not, if not this year, and it probably seems like no, um, I generally kind of agree that it would be right in between what you guys are saying, maybe not like late into June, maybe at the very end of May. I think the Jared timeline is kind of what I would expect. Maybe a little longer because they rushed Jared a tiny, tiny bit. It feels like, but um, yeah, basically that. Um, But yeah, yeah, I think that's going to be it for us today. I'm Evan, and you can find me on Twitter at Evan James Audio. You can find Mikey on Twitter at DisThyMikey. You can find Anders at Anders Jorstad. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, wherever it is you stream. Additionally, please support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash never sunny in Seattle. Thank you for listening and go Mariners.